Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do a great job. You can find out more by visiting the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. To find out more, visit lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy. He's the chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll continue our discussion about executive powers. We'll visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josepha Savaz. We'll also visit with Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston of Space Architecture and author of several books. Uh, his latest is How Everything Happened, Including Us. We'll be talking about uh, his latest column in uh, Newsmax. It is December the 16th, and on this day in 1773 in Boston Harbor, a group of Massachusetts colonists disguised as Mohawk Indians boarded three ships uh, they were tea ships uh, to dump 342 chests of tea into the harbor. The midnight raid, popularly known as the Boston Tea Party, was a protest of the, uh, against the British Parliament's Tea Act of 1773, a bill designed to save the faltering East India Company by greatly lowering its tea tax and granting it a virtual monopoly on the American tea trade. Low tax allowed the East India Company to undercut even tea smuggled into America by Dutch traders and many colonists viewed the act as another example of taxation tyranny. Uh, with three ships, the Dartmouth, the Eleanor, and the Beaver, arrived in Boston Harbor, the colonists demanded that the tea be returned to England after Massachusetts Governor Thomas Hutchinson refused Patriot leader Samuel Adams, uh, who organized the Tea Party with about 60 members of the Sons of Liberty, his underground resistance group, the British tea uh, dumped in the Boston Harbor on that night of 18, uh, December the 16th was valued at some $18,000. Parliament, outraged by the blatant destruction of British property, enacted the Coercive Acts, also known as the Intolerable Acts, in 1774. They closed Boston to merchant shipping, established formal British military rule in Massachusetts, made uh, British officials Immune to criminal prosecution in America and required colonists to quarter British troops. The colonists subsequently called the First Continental Congress to consider a united American resistance to the British. Taxation without representation. It all started in 1773. Well, the Florida Department of Health reported 130 new cases of COVID-19 and no additional deaths in Cuyahoga County on Tuesday. Their uh, seven-day moving average of uh, cases, 144, so 130 is a little less than that. The curve is actually going down, which is good news, at least in the last seven or eight days. Tuesday, there were 109 COVID patients in Cuyahoga County hospitals, which is 14 more than Monday. Still plenty of beds left, so there's no concern uh, in terms of overwhelming the healthcare system. So grateful that we have the governor that we do, uh, Governor DeSantis. Here's an example of... <laughs> This is just amazing. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio is totally fine with New Yorkers taking the subway. In fact, he's encouraging he's now going to start taking the subway with all the germs and bacteria. But they absolutely cannot eat indoors at restaurants despite the low risk of coronavirus that these activities pose. In fact, he's closed them down until after the holidays. The latest transmission data shows that 74% of new COVID cases come from in-home gatherings, and only 1.3% from bars and restaurants. I'm not kidding. Thank you, thank you so much for uh, uh, Governor DeSantis. Speaking to the United States on Monday night after attaining 270 electoral votes needed to become president, Biden urged Americans to not give election fraud or voter irregulators one further thought. Biden said that the questions that were raised about election issues were resolved through the legal processes he gave a civics lesson to America as to the nature of democracy and criticized Trump's efforts to secure a free and fair election. This makes me smile. Uh, clearing his throat, Moltz said, Today our nation passed a grim milestone, noting that over 300,000 death toll and intoning personal grief, as he often did on the campaign trail. My heart goes out to each of you in this dark winter of the pandemic, about to spend the holidays and the new year with a black hole in your heart. 
I'm not kidding, he really said that. There's a need for bold action to fight this pandemic. Newly minted president-elect told the nation, through coughs and gurgles, Biden said, we're still facing a very dark winter. That's encouraging, isn't it? There's nearly 10 million COVID cases in the United States. Last week, we topped 120,000 new cases of multiple consecutive days. Infections rates are going up. Hospitalizations are going up. It's all doom and gloom, according to the president-elect Biden. Biden said that upon taking office, he would take all states, ask all states to implement a mask mandate, forcing citizens to wear fast face mask coverings in public places and any place that has the authority to implement it. Biden's tone, of course, is a direct contrast to outgoing President Donald Trump's tone, who typically errs on the side of positivity and optimism in grim facts, asking for further sacrifice. <laughs> Joe Biden, you know, I'm not, not sure I could take four years of that. For, and fortunately, this thing is not over. We're still uh, contesting the election. Joe Biden held a, a parking lot rally for Ossoff and Warnock at, <laughs> at an empty warehouse. Warehouse. You should see the pictures. Nobody came to see a guy who garnered 81 million votes. Nobody showed up to see the president-elect, quote-unquote. Amazing. Amid claims of uh, election fraud, the Arizona state will issue subpoenas to inspect and audit ballot uh, counting machines in Maricopa County, a top Republican senator announced Monday at the conclusion of a six-hour-long legislative hearing in the November election. During the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, senators heard testimony from the county's election director, the chair of its board of supervisors, one of the chief attorneys about 2020 election, and two officials with the Arizona General uh, Election Integrity Unit. They all testified that there was no evidence that President-elect Joe Biden uh, was a win was achieved by fraud, manipulation, or tampering, and repeatedly shot down questions from senators based on conspiracy theories. So I want our voters to be 100% confident, to be as confident as I am about the process, said Scott Jarrett, the county's election director. He noted the county's vote machines uh, aced every test in three elections in 2020, the presidential primary in March and the primary in August, and the general in November. Well, we'll see. So it's, it's now they're going to actually do a forensic audit on those machines. We'll see how it all comes up. And while appearing for an extensive interview with the Epic Times, attorney Sidney Powell discussed irregularities she's uncovered over the course of her investigation into alleged election fraud-related uh, issues and expressed confidence that the time this time is soon approaching where most of her bombshell claims will be confirmed. We have counterfeit ballots. We have dead people voting by the thousands, if not by the hundreds of thousands. There was something someone called phantom voters it was just more uh, manner and means of fraud than any law-abiding citizen could possibly imagine, she said to Jan Jekielik of the Epic Times. It's stunning. It's absolutely stunning, she said. And they are so, uh, are so in the face with it. They, uh, then to deny it is purely Machiavellian, she said. She also thinks there's been enough information recovered indicating foreign interference in the 2020 election to the point that President Trump can take executive action that would open the door for a wide-scale investigation. And she's hopeful that when uh, John Radcliffe gives his report about the election, which is due on December the 18th, he will confirm nearly everything she has publicly discussed. If Radcliffe's report is honest report, it is going to blow the mind of every citizen in the country who is willing to look at, uh, and look at the truth and facts, she declared. So uh, you may be aware that in 2020, the president is issued a, an emergency declaration uh, about uh, future uh, elections and if, uh, to uh, prevent foreign interference. And in fact, if he uh, has this emergency declaration declared, if he actually exercises it, <laughs> it is going to be so amazing and so interesting. The 2018 order from President Donald Trump addresses the specter similar to Monday's revelation that Russian hackers have penetrated the Department of Homeland Security. Although there's been uh, no evidence of foreign power altering the outcome of vote tabulation in any United States election, foreign powers have historically sought to exploit America's free and open political system, Trump wrote in 2018 in the order. 
In recent years, the proliferation of digital devices and internet-based communication has created significant vulnerabilities and magnified the scope and intensity of the threat of foreign interference. As illustrated in the 2017 Intelligence Community Assessment, I hereby declare a national emergency to deal with this threat. Now, within this uh, 2018 emergency threat uh, that was uh, declared, I think it was September of 2018, uh, you, all kinds of things can happen, including the confiscation of uh, machines and confiscation of uh, those that participated in this entire event. I hope he actually does declare it on the, uh, December the 18th. That will be very interesting news. And my goodness, will that get everybody excited about this election. This segment of the show brought to you by Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. You can find out more by visiting lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Bob Levy. Bob is the chairman of the Cato Institute. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. Visit the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, going to visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. Bob is an author. He's also a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure being with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in D.C. We're focused on private property, free markets, securing individual rights, and limited government. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Great think tank in Washington, D.C. So thank you for that, Bob. And uh, for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the exercise of executive power by the uh, President of the United States. We've been talking about uh, the selective enforcement of federal laws we left off last time. The Republicans have promised to repeal and replace Obamacare. What should be the replacement? 
Yeah, that's one area where there has been selective enforcement, mostly under the Obama administration. Um, well, several things <clears throat> to replace Obamacare. First, I would expedite competition by allowing interstate sales of health insurance, mm -hmm. which are not now allowed. Second, uh, encourages states to reform their medical malpractice laws, <clears throat> which drive up medical costs. Uh, third, we ought to eliminate the restrictions on health savings accounts, which is the, the best form of insurance with high deductible coverage, so people are insured against those things that really are uh, disabling from a financial perspective. A fourth, I think we ought to charge more for people who have pre-existing conditions. I mean, the, the very thought that an insurance company should charge uh, the same thing for fire insurance for a house that's already on fire is absolutely nuts. Mm -hmm. um, fifth, we ought to um, not cover high-cost procedures until so a few months after enrollment to keep people from gaming the system. And then finally, I, I think it might not be a bad idea if somebody shows up at the emergency window and doesn't pay his bills, uh, there ought to be some kind of uh, punishment. I don't mean incarceration, but something like mandatory uh, community service. And then finally, and I think most important, we need to change the tax treatment of health insurance premiums that uh, discriminate against individuals and in favor of corporate uh, policy. That makes a lot of sense. How about just uh, taking all the payments of, of Medicare, uh, divvy up the money, and send it back to the taxpayer, and let them figure out how to spend it? <laughs> <laughs> well, great idea. I'm afraid <laughs> Not not likely in our lifetime. I know. So what about handling pre-existing conditions? Well, you know, right now, medical insurance premiums are mainly paid by employers, not by patients. Mm -hmm. And because the patients don't bargain directly with uh, the providers of health insurance, uh, these, these corporate policies, uh, they're not tailored to each individual. They're not portable once you lose your job. And therefore, they don't guarantee you coverage for an uh, a condition that can change employers. Um, so if we had guaranteed renewable coverage, that would alleviate this problem of pre-existing conditions. And when you think about consumers of life insurance, um, they don't have any problem getting guaranteed renewable coverage because they pay for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that applies even if they change jobs after they become uh, sick. So the, the tax code is actually the culprit. Mm -hmm. uh, employees don't have to report uh, corporate medical coverage as taxable income, and businesses deduct their costs as an ordinary expense. There's no equivalent deduction available to you or me uh, if we buy our own health insurance. So it, it's you know it's more economical for each person to obtain some standardized policy through his employer than to get a tailored policy that more needs meets our needs uh, directly from an insurance company because we'd have to pay with the uh, after tax dollars. Yeah. So it's the tax policy that's driving this wedge uh, between the patient uh, and the medical provider. Not only is there an insurance company that pays the doctor or the hospital, but there's also an employer that pays the insurance company. And the net result is that individuals, we seldom monitor the cost of our medical care or our insurance. And the solution to that is allow patients to deduct the cost of medical insurance against their personal income tax. That would eliminate this incentive for employers to pay for health insurance, and it might even remove the employer from the doctor-patient relationship, which would be a very good thing. It would encourage consumers to do exactly what they do in other markets, mm -hmm. shop around uh, for adequate, fairly priced service that includes guaranteed uh, renewable uh, coverage. You'd have price-sensitive and quality-sensitive consumers disciplining the providers of insurance uh, and health care. So instead, today, you know, we have this government-driven demand um, under Obamacare instead of market-based solutions that are grounded in uh, individual responsibility. Obamacare is grounded in subsidy, dependency, yeah. and compulsion. And that's what's wrong with our health care. Well, and the whole thing was born out of compulsion. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, the whole notion of uh, uh, group benefits came from wage freezes during the FDR's administration. Exactly. And, and, and so employers are trying to figure out, well, how can we keep our good employees? Well, let's give them group benefits. So this, <laughs> it all started exactly with a government right. mandate. It's yeah, trying to circumvent uh, a 
another ridiculous law, minimum wage laws and <clears throat> and other labor laws, circumvent it with health benefits, and then you get yourself into this morass that we now have. Absolutely a, a large part of our economy. So how about federal marijuana laws? Can the president simply declare he's not going to enforce them? That, that appears to be what the case at this point. Yeah, so Obamacare isn't the only area where the president thinks he can ignore the law. So we had the Obama Justice Department essentially ordered U.S. attorneys not to enforce the laws. Mm-hmm. So it might be a smart move politically. Uh, voters in a lot of states have now legalized medical marijuana and some states recreational marijuana. So the problem, however, is that the Federal Controlled Substances Act explicitly says you can't possess, use, distribute, sell um, marijuana. So like it or not, Congress declared that marijuana is dangerous and should be banned. And despite my uh, sense that they're wrong about that, uh, the Supreme Court um, upheld that law and uh, Attorney General Holder at the time said, never mind the law. Americans can just uh, can just mellow out. Don't worry about enforcement. Well, the irony is, of course, uh, that uh, if the president decided to, he could say, well, we're going to start enforcing them now. <laughs> it would create total havoc in markets like in Colorado and other places. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed it would. So what's the justification does the president have for selective enforcement of, of uh, laws? Well, the, you know, the... The Justice Department uh, memo on marijuana cited <clears throat> enforcement priorities, limited resources, um, and I understand that uh, those resources are limited, and some crimes clearly deserve more enforcement than others. But the, you know, the president can't make a blanket declaration that he's not going to enforce a law <clears throat> just because he doesn't like it. Uh, he and the Attorney General effectively decriminalize an entire class of narcotics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, imagine if the administration decided, <clears throat> excuse me, to decriminalize uh, securities fraud mm-hmm. simply because uh, uh, by decreeing it, there wouldn't be any prosecutions. Um, my view is is uh, very vigorous on the side of legalizing marijuana. Mm-hmm. I'd go even further. I'd legalize <clears throat> some other drugs as well. Mm-hmm. But there's a right way to do it and a wrong way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the right way is to repeal Substances Act, the president could lead that charge, but repeal a law by executive edict. He can't just pretend that the law never existed. You know, we have so many immigration law. There's so many. In fact, if just Congress would do its law, do its role, or, or you know, step up to the plate and pass laws, or or uh, <laughs> get rid of laws even better, uh, you know, we could function. We're starting to lose the power of the legislature right now, and the president, as a consequence, is gaining more and more power. Yeah, the president's, uh, you know, every president, both parties, tries to arrogate unto themselves um, more power. So really the blame is not with the president. That's a natural course of action. Mm -hmm. The blame is with Congress that's abdicated responsibility to be the legislative body. Absolutely. Bob Levy, again, uh, the chairman of the Cato Institute, I encourage you to visit Cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. Bob, just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. 
That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Offshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. Right now we have with us Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. So, always like to talk to you about what's going on in, in politics and what's affecting our culture. Uh, start off by uh, getting your thoughts and comments about uh, Bill Barr's resignation as Attorney General. Well, I, I will talk about Barr. Let me let me start out with a little story, which I tend to do in my writings, and I'm, I'm incorporating that into my uh, my my oral statements also. Uh, during World War II, my father was a first sergeant uh, in his platoon unit in, in France. Uh, they were in an active combat situation with the Waffen-SS division. Uh, during that process, uh, they, they took 10 Waffen-SS prisoners. My father gave those prisoners to a Jewish corporal and told them to bring the prisoners back to headquarters and be back in 15 minutes. Headquarters was 10 miles away, Bob. Now. What point am I making? Is this a, a point of bragging about my father? He, he wasn't bragging when he told me the story. It was a, a regrettable thing he had to do. So you have the perfect situation, uh, moral situation, legal situation, where those prisoners should have been uh, taken back to headquarters. But this was an active combat situation in which their very existence put at risk, additional risk, uh, his troops. So that's a point I'm going to get back to as I, as I talk about some of the issues surrounding the courts. The, the need to act in a moment of absolute required expediency as compared to the moment of doing exactly the right thing in a gen generic sense. So let me just leave that there for the moment and I'll, I'll get back to it. Um, in terms of Barr, Barr, uh, the cordial exchange of, uh, of um, written ex communication between Barr and Trump indicated that this was an agreed-on resignation. The, the general presumption, and I think my presumption, is that uh, Barr to appoint a special counsel to investigate the Hunter Biden laptop situation. Uh, Barr did not want to do that to retain, as he would have seen it, the integrity of the Department of Justice. But he, just, he uh, agreed to resign, uh, bringing in Jeff Rosen and uh, the potential appointment of a special counsel uh, for that process. Now, I have, I have problems with Barr, as, as uh, most do, who support the president. Uh, there were several moments where I think he, he could have done, as, uh, as I pointed out in my father's story, the, the necessary expedient thing, uh, as the allegations were being uh, made public about the, uh, the Biden laptop, um, and uh, the Democrats said they were uh, a result of, of Russian interference, or mm -hmm. they were uh, just fake news prepared by the Republicans themselves. Um, Biden, uh, I'm sorry, Barr kept silent when Biden claimed that there was no story there during the presidential debates. Again, Barr kept silent. Uh, I obviously understand his position that he did not want to reveal an active case. Uh, but on the other hand, I think he had the necessary requirement to rebut 
uh, these allegations being made by the left that seriously affected the way the public uh, saw the president and his and his entire campaign. Beyond yeah. that, to say there were there was no evidence of fraud also was an indication, I think, of a of a position that had no justification in reality, and it was a a position that I think certainly would have uh, annoyed the president. Uh, perhaps annoyed is too limited a word. But I think there was absolute reason to suspect that uh, that Barr had ignored entirely the, the incredible expediency of this moment to do one thing and one thing only to Bob, and that was to defend as he saw it. And I'm not supporting the statement, as I say it, uh, to support as he saw it, the integrity of the Department of Justice. So uh, I think the Barr resignation was an agreed on thing, uh, agreed on so that a special counsel could be appointed to uh, uh surveil the uh, the Hunter Biden laptop and the potential implications that certainly would extend to James Biden, uh, perhaps even Jill Biden and Joe Biden. So mm-hmm. uh, this was a, a serious situation that I think was agreed on. Mutuality uh, existed there between the president and, and the attorney general. So interesting that uh, not anywhere in that letter that uh, Bill Barr sent, which, by the way, was extremely complimentary to the president and his, his record over the course of that time that he served, uh, nowhere was the word resignation or I resign in the letter. And nowhere in, in, uh, uh, in uh, President Trump's response was there an acknowledgement of resignation. So it makes me wonder, perhaps, if something else isn't up. <laughs> Let me interview you for a second, Bob. What do you make of that? Well, you know, there's, this, uh, there's the... Uh, uh, the uh, executive emergency order, emergency declaration that was declared in September of 2018 about this upcoming election, and the fact that if there's foreign interference, that the all kinds of things could happen, including including seizing of property. Uh, 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 yeah. I'm familiar with that act. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, um, and it makes me wonder. Perhaps the the attorney general didn't step aside. For the holidays and allow the assistant attorney general to step in and, and who back basically is uh, an expert in this area to uh, to uh, take over yeah it's so, sort of a subset you're suggesting a subset of what i was talking about is that uh bar either refused or did not see it appropriate to act in a certain manner that the president thought was required and yeah. uh, either with a direct resignation or by stepping aside as you're putting it uh, to bring jeff rosen into uh, to do what had to be done in the, in the moment. So yeah. uh, I think the bar resignation is a is a is a good thing. Uh, it has there's no downside obviously to the bar resignation, and there can be possible significant uh, significant upsides to what uh, what occurred there. Yeah. Um, so let me I let me continue. We, let me continue this. The, the fatal flaw of bar, and I think of the uh, su- uh, Supreme Court of the United States, is that they're trying to maintain their neutrality and integrity separate from politics. And, and the problem is that they're not doing their job as a consequence. Well, I think that's absolutely right. And that sort of uh, gets me back to my, my story. Uh, certainly the, the Supreme Court and Barr could act in the, let's say, in the highest level legal manner. Mm-hmm. But there are other manners they could have acted that were equally legal. So they chose the, the most extreme level of, of positioning a bar did in the attorney general's chair and the Supreme Court also did. Mm-hmm. Could the Supreme Court have uh, have taken the, the Texas case? Of course they could have. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that they denied that they had standing this was interpretive, not an absolute uh, situation. In other words, they had to suggest by their interpretation, Texas had no standing. Could they have interpreted that differently Absolutely. and given them standing? Absolutely. That case could have been taken up by the Supreme Court. They decided not to take up that case. Right. Now, I would suggest without uh, absolute knowledge of what I'm going to say to be true, but I would suggest that if the uh, everything was reversed politically in this, in other words, the 6-3 leftist court and, and Biden was challenging Trump in exactly the same situation and a suit came forward, I can almost guarantee that leftist court would have taken up that, uh, that case with no problem with the standing issue of uh, becoming involved. So I think the state court, uh, as you're suggesting, I think you're suggesting, abrogated their their responsibilities by not understanding the situation in which the country, the president, getting back, the country itself uh, uh, finds itself. And by doing so, I think they acted in a in a manner totally inappropriate for their uh, for their historic function as it should be performed. No question. And Andy, I'd like to continue the conversation. We need to take a break. Can you stick around? 
I can. I have a few more things to talk about. Okay, great. Uh, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government does doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best and building a new performing arts center in downtown Naples. You can find out more by visiting golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston Space Architecture. Uh, right now, we continue the conversation with Andy Joppa. Andrew Joppa is a professor at the uh, Mercy College and author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, again, thank you so much for joining us. And Mercy College is getting snowed out today. By the yes, they are. Big, New York. big snowstorm up in New York, too. Maggie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, up to two feet of snow, as I understand it. So, it's, it's called historic, one of those historic snowstorms. Oh, well. So, Andy, I want to talk to you about the election. And we've got uh, 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 dual electors now selected in several states. What are your thoughts? Well, I think it provides the president with a clear path to victory. Now, saying it's a clear path to victory does not mean a likely path to victory. Mm -hmm. But it is a path that we can define. Seven states, seven swing states that President Trump lost theoretically to, uh, to Joe Biden uh, have sent uh, an additional slate of electors, the pro-Trump uh, pro electors, uh, to Congress. So those seven states now have two slates of electors uh, sitting before Congress. Undoubtedly, the House... Uh, Dominant, dominated by the Democrats, will support the the Biden the Biden uh, slate. Uh, but when it moves to the Senate, there is a strong potential that the Senate. Uh, let me. That's probably too strong a statement. There is some potential that the Senate may seat the seven uh, slates of electors for for the president. If so, if that happens, big if, Bob. Uh, then one of two things either happens. It'll it'll either negate entirely uh, the. Um, the result of those states, and therefore neither candidate will get to 270, right. uh, and therefore the uh, that election will be kicked into the House of Representatives. Uh, the House of Representatives, although by individual membership, is dominated by Democrats. By state, is dominated by, by Republicans. So if that particular path is followed, in other words, we get a divided um, ruling by the, by the Congress, the, the House ruling one way, the Senate ruling another way, on these two separate slates of electors, there is a reasonable possibility that that could negate entirely the electors from those states, shoving this whole election into the House, uh, and that the, the Republicans, in the model that is used constitutionally, uh, would dominate. So that is a clear path. Now, there are things that will, will certainly affect that, mm -hmm. uh, even if, um, if uh, Purdue and, 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 and Loeffler win in Georgia. That'll be 52 to 48. Uh, there is still a chance of uh, some uh, Republican, Republicans flipping on that, which would uh, uh, destroy the ability of the Senate to accept the Republican slate if both Loeffler and, and Purdue lose and it goes 50-50, uh, then there's probably no chance that uh, we could expect the whole Romney, at least, in, in terms of ensuring a Republican vote in support of the president. So there's a lot of variables in this, mm -hmm. but uh, as I indicated at the beginning, it is a clear path to victory. 
uh, if this all unfolds as it would in the best case scenario. So, uh, Andy, uh, just in terms of the timeline here, the election is on January the 5th, I believe. That's when the, the, the Congress has to validate the, uh, the slate of elections. All right. And so if, if both of these, if the Democrats won both uh, seats, that would make it 50-50, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And then, uh, in fact, when would they be seated as the new senators? Probably well after the 5th, because there's going to be some vote counting after January the 5th. My, my point is only this, that uh, it's possible that they, even if they're elected, they couldn't be seated uh, for this vote. And I'm, I'm not sure of, of the timeline there. You, you, might, uh, you might absolutely be correct. I'm not sure how quickly this whole thing that I've described would unfold. And yeah. so, uh, I certainly, uh, that's a piece of information. Uh, timeline is, is critical. Um, and I, I don't know that. But even if it goes 52-48, I think there is still a, a, a dubious Republican support of, uh, of the president's slate of electors going into the Senate. Not impossible, but I, I think it becomes not a sure thing. That's, uh, that's yeah. uh, good. an absolute statement I can make. Yeah, good point. And, and uh, the, <laughs> the, the, there's a certain degree of irony involved in the fact that the, uh, Georgia has decided to have absentee voting and, you know, have, what do we call it? Uh, uh, in mail, mail voting, mailing in vote, uh, voter, vote by, by mail by balloting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So my, my point is only this, that it'll probably take after the uh, 5th of January for the results to be found and declared. And the consequence could be that those two uh, senators can't be seated in order to take the vote on the, uh, electors, which would be kind of ironic, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, you know, timing is everything in these elections and certainly we, we have to recognize that from the point of the election on November 3rd to the actual casting of the electoral ballots on December 14th, there is absolutely no time for any court at any level to have fully developed the, uh, the uh, forensic information to document fraud. If we look at the uh, Allied Security Operations Group that did an uh, analysis of Antrim, Michi uh, Michigan, in terms of the uh, use of uh, the, their computer systems, uh, let me just read one short uh, conclusion uh, in the 74-page report, which I've read the whole thing. Uh -huh. But they say, we conclude that the Dominion voting system is intentionally and purposefully designed with inherent errors yes. to create systemic fraud and influence election results. Now, they go on to give a lot of details about this. They lay out all the particulars. They give numbers. There is no doubt that Allied, Allied Security has proven beyond any reasonable doubt that the Dominion computer system was not only used for fraud, but was designed for fraud. So we, we have that also that uh, is going on. It's widely suggested that all of these um, lower-level court challenges and suits that have been initiated, there was no expectation of victory, but they were trying to introduce as much awareness into the system, particularly at the legislative level of these states, as to the fraud that took place. Here's an interesting thing that just, that just came to my mind. In Pennsylvania, when they had the original suit uh, uh, challenging the election outcome, uh, the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania said that it was too late uh, to challenge the election result. Of course, if they had challenged earlier, let's say before the election, the design of that whole election process, they would not have had standing. They wouldn't have had uh, any ability to challenge the election. The, the court would have ruled that there cannot be a presumption of fraud. So no matter which way they played it out, if they did it early, too early, let's say too early as the case may be, uh, the Supreme Court would not have accepted the challenge. Right. And if it's done after the election, it's too late. So it's an obvious uh, no-win no situation for anyone wanting to challenge the fraud of the, of the election. So are you suggesting that uh, right now any uh, possibility of uh, getting support from the court's in Wisconsin, in uh, Arizona, and uh, other locations. That's a moot point at this point. It's all going to depend on what happens in Congress. I think that's what I feel, and I believe it's also what President Trump feels. If I was to take the positions I've read and, and from several different sources, uh, the whole uh, intent of the uh, Trump challenge to the Biden uh, fraudulent win has been to reach this point where there are different slates of electors sent to Congress uh, and it would come down to a battle between the House choosing the Biden slate and the, the Senate choosing the, the Trump slate. Trump and his whole, his whole team recognize that the courts would not be able to, or willing to, perhaps both, uh, to hear on these uh, allegations 
because they really could not develop enough definitive information about fraud mm -hmm. uh, to act. And I think they always understood that. So, yes, I, if, if your question or statement, I guess, is that will the courts act? I, I think they will not. I think there was always a presumption they would not uh, for the reasons I've cited. And I think we're coming down to that, uh, that situation that I've described. And um, uh, that's where the, uh, the final ball game will, will be determined. By. All right. Well, interesting. Do you think in any way that uh, this emergency declaration on the part of the president was that we talked about in uh, September of 2018? In any way, do you think that uh, he will declare uh, this emergency? Or it's already been declared by him. Will he act on it? I, gosh, it's, it's really so hard to, to, to determine that. It certainly has application. Um, whether or not he, I, I believe it'll be how uh, important it is he feels, how important he feels it is to invoke it. And uh, I, I don't know how that is being seen by the, uh, by the Trump team. And uh, so if, if they feel it is, let's say, the, the last resort in this situation, they certainly will not hesitate. If they believe that clear path to victory is still there through the method I've described, I, I don't think they'll go in that direction. Interesting. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, I, I just end this interview with an acknowledgement of the fra uh, founders and the framers of the Constitution and what they came up with, because they understood there would be co contentious elections, and they certainly set up a system that which uh, would allow for uh, these types of problems, because they've accounted for it going back, what is it, 245 years, whatever it might be. It's, a, it's just amazing that they came up with a document such as they did. The other point is, you know, the, right now, as late, Hillary Clinton has called for the uh, abolition of the Electoral College. My goodness, let's not do that. And, of course, it's a very difficult process to make that happen. Yeah, you just can't call for the, uh, for the elimination <laughs> of the Electoral College. It's a, it's a constitutional situation that would require an amendment. So I think this is all pure rhetoric. And let me, let me just finish off <clears throat> with an applicable, uh, applicable uh, quotation from Winston Churchill. Uh, he said, you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. That's right. <laughs> so uh, okay. here we are. I think what I described is the right thing, uh, the, the Senate, House uh, debate over, uh, over the seating of, of the slates of electors, and I think they've tried everything else. It hasn't worked. And so here we are. They're going to do the right thing at the very end of the, of the battle. Box. We certainly hope so. Andy, terrific commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk soon, Bob. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, uh, we're going to visit with uh, Professor Larry Bell, or that and more right here in the uh, Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you or a family member suffer from chronic pain in your knees, hips, or shoulders? Joint pain can be a nagging and serious problem requiring expert and compassionate care. I know I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. Until 2006, I was suffering debilitating pain and deformity in my knees. I couldn't enjoy biking or golf or even sleep without chronic pain as a constant companion. Thanks to Dr. George Markovich and the professional staff at the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, my pain is gone, and I'm back to doing the activities I enjoy with no pain. I have a lifestyle I can only imagine. Imagine prior to knee surgery, and you can too. Call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. They will thoroughly evaluate your condition, provide personalized, state-of-the-art treatment, and help you relieve your pain and get back to your active lifestyle. At the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, your care will be professionally managed through every phase of your recovery. For an initial consultation, call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, located off Tamiami Trail in Bonita Springs, at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulubee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did.
Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We have with us Professor Larry Bell. Professor Bell is an endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's the author of several books. His latest is How Everything Happened, Including Us. Professor Bell, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Um, thanks for having me on. I always enjoy it. I enjoy it as well, Professor. And uh, you're right. On, on Point is the name of your column for... Uh, 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 Newsmax.com, and your latest is so interesting. It's uh, about it's uh, China uh, and Wall Street allies cheer Biden election. Wow, strange belt fellows. Maybe you could tell us about it. Yeah, you know we've been hearing a lot lately in the news about uh, China having very ambitious uh, espionage and uh, influence uh, programs and disinformation programs so on, and, and those that have been following the news, of course, have been hearing about Eric Swalwell lately uh, and his, his little adventure with uh, Fang Fang, uh, a Chinese uh, uh, spy, and we've been hearing about Diane Feinstein's chauffeur for nearly 20 years, who was a spy, and so on, but mm. it's apparent that China has a very active espionage program, and... Uh, Recently, uh, Director of National Intelligence John Radcliffe had been highlighting China as being really uh, public enemy number one as far as a security threat to the United States. But China has been very active and, of course, infiltrated industries and taken information from MD Anderson on cancer research here in Houston and, and so on. Uh, and, and very active program. So it's really rather remarkable that uh, uh, Joe Biden's family hasn't been kind of on the alert to security issues when when uh, you know Hunter uh, attends uh, he, uh, on a on a flight you know Air Force Two flight to Beijing with his father and introduces him to a Chinese business partner and comes back. A couple weeks later, with a billion and a half dollar contract and and other dealings in China, certainly must know. Uh, you would think of the vulnerabilities of using this for uh, extortion for the United States and for his family, and yet uh, that certainly has existed. Uh, it's, it's been reported to the State Department long ago that it was a, a risk, and so it was no. Secret when uh, when Biden was vice president, and now uh, of course uh, it's doubly concerning as as uh, Joe Biden now is I guess officially uh, president elect will be um, again leading U.S. policy in global affairs and uh, most particularly the countries where uh, Biden Incorporated has been uh, doing a lot of their influence peddling business yeah uh, my assessment is that uh, i think uh, quite that instead of looking at china as a threat i think uh, biden will look at them uh, look at uh, china as a partner he's already been compromised and they've got business deals with hunter in china so business will be good with china short term but at the expense of perhaps uh, compromising our long-term health and uh, safety as a country in the uh, in the global situation well, I think that's true, and and I think what we'll see is is very likely. Um, you know, I think Biden is certainly aware that he's compromised and his family's compromised, and more and more of this uh, Hunter Biden and Jim Biden and Frank Biden stuff is going to be coming out in the news now. That the election's over; the uh, mainstream media can uh, look for more eyeballs and ears, and want to you know maybe get some. You know, you know, switch into showing some interest in some of those things, but so I think we'll probably hear some tough talk on China from Biden, but uh, it'll be kind of the red lines in the sand kind of Obama stuff, leave leave behind, and 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 so on. That uh, it'll be really how we follow through on these issues and mm-hmm. and the issues with Huawei, uh, Huawei, Huawei, and and. And you know the high tech and the five G issues and, and 
information theft and and uh, the the you know all all of the shenanigans that China's been so involved with. We'll see you know what happens in the in the South China Sea and how how that materializes in terms of uh, showing some some backbone and of course China's incursions in India and so on. So they're they've been very very aggressive recently and and uh, they certainly are uh, not intimidated by uh, not going to be intimidated by a, a Biden presidency and, no. and uh, it'll be interesting to see how. How rapidly uh, the progress that uh, President Trump has made on international affairs will be uh, 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 unraveled by a Biden administration. Yeah. Do you think uh, Israel's going to be comfortable with uh, with uh, the uh, Biden administration? I don't think so. I'd, I'd be interested in your comments, though. You say Wall Street allies cheer Biden's election. I mean, there's a. Uh, you know, there's certainly more regulation and so forth. It could be bad for business, but uh, of course, uh, the bi- Wall Street's all about big business, not little guys. Well, it's very globalist, of course, and there's a there's a video that's been circulating that that was by um, it was from a, a television program in China, and there's a professor D. Dan Jing. A professor who's associate dean at the Remnant University School of International Studies in Beijing, and he was giving a rather remarkably candid uh, talk to the audience mm-hmm. about uh, how easy it's been to uh, how they really had quote old friends in high places both in Wall Street and and the various administrations, and and you're saying that you know they, they have these high level contacts and. Highest level, top level uh, in Wall Street, and I kind of imagine who, who a lot of them are. They're you know globalist business organizations, and they use uh, Wall Street to pressure various administrations, including very much uh, the Obama administration. And he was commenting on how how easy it was to manipulate the Biden, you know, the the Obama administration, and then he made specific reference to uh, to Joe Biden and his his family business, and he essentially said um, to his audience, "You you know you've you've heard about this, and essentially you know we know you know you know probably how how we got. In fact, I think I have a quote here. He said uh, he said to his audience, studio audience, you all heard that Trump said Biden's son is security companies all over the world, but who helped Biden's Son built his global companies. He said, "The audience got it." And then, and then he was uh, referring to the uh, the uh, various scandals. He said, "He said he said there are indeed buy and sell transactions involved here." So I think at this particular time, with Biden winning the election, this is strategic and tactical value for us to show goodwill to him. So, so they're going to palsy up and. and this this was uh, this video has gone viral here in the U.S. It was scrubbed from social media in China, but this professor was was uh, a pretty highly placed uh, confidant within China. Yeah, and I re- that, that has been a reason. I, you know, I just hope that uh, <laughs> we that uh, President Trump prevails here in spite of uh, President-elect Biden because there's so many uh, so many uh, warning signs on the horizon for what's going to happen as a result of a Biden presidency. We can only hope, Professor. Uh, I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show, Professor. I just remind our listeners to your great book. It's called How Everything Happened, Including Us by Larry Bell. Professor, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Bob, it's always a pleasure. Thank you again. My pleasure indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you'll uh, join us tomorrow. We'll visit with uh, Seat Modley, the founder and president of Less Government, Keith Flaw, the uh, co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Michael Cannon is the director of health studies at the uh, Cato Institute. And Bill Barnett, former mayor of Naples, will fill us in on what's happening locally Uh, Anyhow, I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.
Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>